0: Well good morning once again, Lynn and I are very grateful and thankful for being here today and we look forward to sharing the gospel with you from Mark chapter 8, if you would like to get your Bibles ready for that, we'll be looking at Mark chapter 8 verses 1 through 21, we'll be reading that in a few minutes. So this is the time of year we focus on learning. And it's a good thing I watch TV, because if it wasn't for the ads about back to school, I wouldn't have known it's back to school time. So boys and girls, how many of you got new backpacks this year? Okay. How many got new books, new pencils, new clothes? Come on, parents. What's going on here? Oh, we can- <laughs> All right, this is the time of year all those things begin to happen, and I'm... So grateful to hear that today is your first day of Sunday school here again, and um, something for the kids to look forward to. But our focus is on learning this time of year. I know that when I went to school, and that was just a few years ago, there was only one kind of learning. You sat there and you listened. But I understand that today, there are different learning styles. There is the visual, which is very graphic. You like to see something to learn. There's the auditory, which means I rather listen. Even with my eyes closed, just listen to that, and I can learn. Others like to be involved, like like read and write, doing doing paperwork and and reading the the problem and solving it, kind of like a workbook. Then there's another kind called movement, hands-on building something, kind of like on-the-job training. And it, that was kind of me when I, when I was growing up. I didn't know that back then because I was told just to sit and listen. But I learned more by doing things. And then through the years of my ministry, I took a lot of kids, high school kids, to work camps, work trips. And I began to see kids blossom in their faith because they were actively doing something that was expressing their faith. And they learned through that. But, you know, Jesus had different learning styles as well. And when we read the Gospels and study his three years of teaching, we know, of course, he taught in parables. An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. The good Samaritan, the prodigal son. Jesus taught through sermons like the Sermon on the Mount, very famous sermon that we read in the Gospels. He taught through miracles throughout the scriptures or throughout the Gospels. We read stories of Jesus healing, healing those that were blind giving giving uh, people able to walk who could not walk for, for years or even from birth. So he taught through those miracles. But did you know that Jesus also taught through questions? And when we learn something, many times we learn because we're answering questions. And did you know that Jesus asked over 300 questions in the gospel during his ministry? In Matthew 6, verse 15, he says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? He was asking them that because the disciples were telling Jesus what everybody was saying about him. But then Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And the disciples had to clarify in their mind to give an answer. Who is this man that we've been listening to? In Matthew 20, verse 32, Jesus asked, what do you want me to do for you? This is the story of the two blind men that were sitting since birth. They were blind, and Jesus was walking by, and they they hollered out to Jesus, have mercy on us. But Jesus asked very specifically, what do you want me to do for you? I think it's an interesting question because so often our prayers, and I know I do this too, is, Lord, bless us today. Well, what is it? What are we asking of Jesus? In Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? This has to do with a question that says, you know who I am, but yet you don't do what I ask you to do. In John 21, 17, do you love me? This was that question that Jesus asked of Peter. Asking questions stimulate discussion and creative and critical thinking, as well as determine how students are thinking. Questions help students retain materials by putting words into otherwise unspoken thoughts. Questions are a learning tool. That's why even after five years old, kids begin to ask that question, why? Any parents can relate to that? How many times your kids ask, why, why? You give an answer, and the answer is, why? Well, they're inquisitive. And they know by asking questions, they're going to get answers. But I also think asking questions, and this is a whole different approach to it, is great if you're doing evangelism. If you're with somebody, you don't know where they are with their faith, it's a good time to start asking questions. It's non threatening. I was with somebody the other day, and I was asking them, so are you part of a local congregation? Are you a follower of Christ? You allow them to give an answer that they feel comfortable with. Today we're going to focus on questions Jesus asked his disciples in Mark chapter 8. So we're going to turn to that. and We're going to read the chapter so you get the full context. And then I'm going to back up and do it in sections. So let's turn to Mark chapter 8. And I think it's going to be up on your screen as well as in the Bibles before you. Beginning with verse 1 of chapter 8. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me for three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Jesus asks, how many loaves do you have? Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmatia. The disciples, or the Pharisees, came and began to question Jesus, to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat again and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? And the disciples answered, 12. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this scripture. We thank you that we have the freedom to read and understand and to learn from your word. I pray for the hearts and minds that are here today that we will receive what you have to tell us. I pray that what I say will be clear and it will be a focus on your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we go any further, I want to be sure you're not confused with the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000, which showed up in Mark chapter 6. There's a lot of similarities between these two feedings. On both occasions, there was a vast multitude that had been listening to the teaching of Jesus somewhere out in the wilderness. And in both narratives, we see that Jesus is moved by compassion for the needs of the people who are gathered. In both narratives, he inquires of the disciples as to what provisions they have found among them. In both narratives, we have a few loaves and just a few fish. In both narratives, Jesus multiplies the loaves and the fish to such a degree that all the people are satisfied. And there's a large abundance of fragments left over of the feeding, which were picked up in baskets. And in both narratives, Jesus leaves the crowds by boat to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, followed by an interrogation and confrontation with the Pharisees, who had come up from Jerusalem. We see all these similarities between the two narratives. And you can understand why the critical scholars would say that, obviously, this is a duplicate. It is simply an error and repetition of the same material. But as we move on into the message, you'll find out they are totally two different stories, but with all those similarities. So we begin with verse 1, where we start reading where there was another large crowd that had gathered around Jesus. This was pretty common. Jesus was a great teacher. He had a lot to say, and they were curious. And Jesus recognizes again that some of them had nothing to eat. So he asks his disciples, what do we have that we can share with these people? And we read about the story of the feeding of the 4,000 with the seven loaves and two fish. Jesus apparently is still in the capitalist area. He now has this large crowd around him. He has been teaching and most likely healing as well. And this has been going on for three days. And we notice the conditions are different now than when he fed the 5,000. He told them then to sit down on the grass. Evidently, there's no grass because he says sit down on the ground. In the first feeding, the disciples wanted Jesus to send the crowd away into the surrounding towns. It seems here that they would have a fair distance to walk. And again, instead of just one day being with Jesus, they had been with him for three days. Excuse me. After the first story, this is what I worry about mostly when I preach. In the first story, the disciples interrupt Jesus' teaching to have him send the people away for dinner. Jesus retorts that they should feed the people. And they, in shock, ask, where are they going to get the money to do this? The disciples are very practical. They're handling the logistics of ministry. If we're going to feed these people, we need the money to do it. In this case, Jesus raises the dilemma and expresses his compassion for the people. The disciples note the problem of location, and they too are are too far away to get the food. They answer Jesus, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Their response is kind of incredulous, doesn't it? They're unwilling, or they just cannot believe what they're hearing. He has miraculously fed a larger crowd before. How could they possibly act so dumb at this time? Can't they understand that Jesus could take care of this? But before we get too upset with the disciples, let's note carefully the record. Jesus has raised the problem with the disciples, but has not said what he would do. He does not say, I have compassion on the people. I think I will feed them. Instead, he says... I have compassion on the people, but if I send them away for food, I'm afraid they won't make it. It could be that the disciples, being respectful of their teacher, do not pursue to impose on Jesus. He's in Gentile territory, after all, and is not necessarily expected to repeat the same stories and do the same thing he did when he fed the 5,000 in Jewish territory. Or maybe they really are wondering what to do. Maybe the first feeding has happened long enough ago that it's not fresh in their minds. And after three trying days in a wilderness territory with a lot of Gentiles, they are not thinking about the other feeding. But I find this, this dilemma kind of interesting because Jesus had compassion on these people and he presented a problem. He presented a situation, but he didn't necessarily give an answer right away. And there are times God challenges us by putting before us situations with no clear answers. Why does he do that? Well, I would imagine that if we are a follower of Christ, he's going to want us to rely on him for those answers. He's going to want us to come to him and say, I have been challenged here. Lord, how do I proceed? And I'm sure that you and I are have been in such situations that we don't know how to get out of them. And sometimes we panic because we didn't bring it to God. But that can also be the case in ministry. There may be times that God puts before us opportunities to do ministry, and we're not sure just how to proceed. And I think that's the case when we think about what I was sharing before, LifeWise Academy. We have an opportunity to take kids out of the public school to bring them the gospel. How are we going to do that? Well, thankfully, God gave us a direction. God gave us a way. God provided an organization that is doing just that. Well, what happens next is pretty easy. We understand that. He sits the people down on the ground, and he gives thanks for the seven loaves. And by the way, as I was reading this again, I'm thinking, well, I grew up in my household when I was little. We prayed before every meal. We prayed at the end of every meal, as well as having devotion. Now I'm beginning to realize where this came from. Every time Jesus broke bread, he prayed. So when we break bread, when we sit down to our meal, We give God thanks. They had two small fishes as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. After the disciples picked up the seven basketfuls, and by the way, these aren't the kind of baskets we have for for our offering. These are baskets. These are large baskets. And we read here about 4,000 were present. And then he sends them away. He feeds the 4,000 with seven loaves of bread, seven small fishes. What are the disciples thinking now? After all their questioning, after all their concern about how we are going to do this, how are we going to handle the logistics of feeding 4,000? Thank you. How are we going to handle this with them now? And I would imagine the disciples are probably saying to each other, well, we see Jesus has come through. But beginning in verse 9, we read that Jesus gets in the boats and goes to Delmalthia on the western edge of the Sea of Galilee. But upon arriving, he encounters the Pharisees again. The Pharisees come to him, and we read in verse 11, the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him that english word is a little weak really the forceful word that we have here in the greek is that they came out to harass him they are not merely having a polite little discussion or debate about matters but they are here in full hostility against him the pharisees are seeking from him a sign from heaven they are going to test him but before we notice jesus responds it's worth asking how many signs do these people need? Jesus had been going through the region with a blaze of miracles. Everywhere he went, he was raising the dead, he was giving sight to the blind, and hearing, healing the death, and so on. But remember that these Pharisees, thank you. Excuse me. God always provides, right? I I don't have enough shells down here. (laughs) I think I remember that cup, too. I think that was my cup when I was here. (laughs) Okay, where was I? (laughs) Uh, Jesus had been going through the region doing all kinds of miracles. What other signs did they want? But remember, the Pharisees were convinced that Jesus had performed those miracles by the power of Satan. So they did not constitute a real divine authentication of Jesus as trustworthy prophet. They wanted to hear the heavens open. Obviously, they weren't present at the baptism of Jesus when God did just that. Anyway, they are now demanding a conclusive sign that will settle the matter once and for all, and they are saying, Jesus, prove to us that you are really from God. Now, we could say, well, that was happening back then, and that was the Pharisees. They're always going to be questioning Jesus. They're going to challenge him. But just this morning as I was going through this, it occurred to me that every time I worry about something or I question something that's happening with uncertainty, I'm doubting if God really exists because I'm not turning it over to him. When I doubt something or if I worry about something or if I'm questioning what God is doing, I'm like a Pharisee who's saying, well, prove to me, God, that you can do it. Prove to me that you got the power to fix this problem. Prove to me that you are my God. But I think Jesus refuses to give an answer at this point for three three reasons. One, he doesn't like their attitude. Their skepticism and hostility are unwarranted. They do not want to prove that he is the Messiah. They want to find a way to distract him. It's the one thing to have honest doubt about Jesus, it's another to desire that he be false. What the Pharisees really hate by that way is not blasphemy, but the light that Jesus is shedding on their hypocrisy. Second, for Jesus to fulfill their request, he would be acting on their terms, not his. As far as Jesus is concerned, he has proved provided ample proof of his authenticity. His miracles and his teachings are true signs for they are keeping with the mission of the Messiah as proclaimed in Scripture. And finally, to give the sign that the Pharisees are demanding, whatever that sign may have been, would undercut what Jesus has been demanding of others, and that's faith. He could use power to force allegiance, but he has come not in power but in humility. And this method is not to overwhelm people with his might but to appeal to them in such a way that only through faith will they recognize his true glory. In verse 12 we read Mark's description of Jesus, he sighed deeply in his spirit. Even that doesn't catch the full nuance of what's going on here rather it's telling us that Jesus comes to the absolute limit humanly speaking. Of his, ex, of his exasperation. He's going, ah, oh, not again. He's sick and tired of this kind of response. But now you may say, wait a minute. Jesus is supposed to be sinless. If he's sinless, he should certainly be patient. Well, Jesus has been more than patient with these people, and one of the points that we fail to grasp is in what sense God himself is patient. The Bible talks about his patience, it talks about his forbearance, it talks about his long suffering. Do we see the patience of God and the forbearance of his mercy so many times in scripture that we sometimes begin to believe that God's patience is never ending? Have you thought that God's patience is infinite? That's an extremely dangerous condition to come to. Because again and again, God warns his people, my spirit will not always strive with men. There is a limit to God's patience. He may forbear with you week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, until you become at ease and complacent and and think, he's always going to forbear with me, so why worry? But there's times in the Bible where God ends his patience and gives people over to their sin. That could happen to people who are sitting here this morning who have depended on God's mercy and are thinking, okay, I got tomorrow, I'm going to get right with God tomorrow. Or give me another week, next week, maybe too too late to deal with God. This is what Jesus is saying to his people. Verse 13 goes on to say, And he left them, and he got into the boat, and cross to the other side. Now we're looking at verse 14 to 16. By now the disciples were getting hungry again, and the disciples had forgotten to take bread. After all the bread they picked up. Well, they weren't much for packing foodstuffs in backpacks whenever they traveled with Jesus. And now they're the ones without bread. And they say that they don't have more than one loaf with them in the, bread, in the boat. And I can imagine the argument. I thought it was, I thought you were going to get the bread. No, Peter, you were going to get the bread. And that's going back and forth. And all of a sudden, never mind the bread of life, who is sitting in the middle of the boat. They are worried because they only have one loaf of bread to divide amongst themselves. So Jesus takes this opportunity to give them a charge. To, to, to tell his disciples, listen. And this is what he says. Take heed, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And the disciples say, is, is that because we forgot the bread? Is that why Jesus is talking about yeast? So the disciples are a little, little confused, don't you think? They're worried about their stomachs jesus is worried about their spiritual life so why yeast and he says be careful take heed you ever see a sign on somebody's house that says beware of the dog beware of the vicious dog <laughs> i really wonder if there's a dog there at all and why would i wonder that because My father did that once. He put a sign, beware of the dog. He never had a dog there at that time. But when we see a sign or when Jesus says, be aware, take heed, he's he's telling them something. Before we go on, we need to look at why is Jesus teaching disciples? What is it about yeast that Jesus uses in 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 this metaphor A little bit works its way throughout the substance it has been placed in, such as dough, and then has a powerful effect, such as making it rise. This yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod then must seem to first to be of a little power, and yet, in reality, it's infectious and it's powerful. And what is this yeast that Jesus is talking about? It's unbelief. Mark introduces Herod in chapter six, verse 14. Herod hears about the miracles of Jesus and forms the wrong conclusion, which is that Jesus is born that Jesus is born in the, uh, from John the Baptist, and he is a man affected by John's teaching and yet without comprehension. The Pharisees have not merely heard about Jesus' miracles, they have seen them, even still, they insist on some other sign before they will believe. We have, with the Pharisees and Herod, examples of opposing approaches to life. The Pharisees strive to be righteous. Herod strives to be wealthy and powerful. But both depend upon the same thing for happiness. Their own abilities to achieve their goals. Both reject the same thing beneath them, humble faith. Be careful of the danger and power of unbelief. Jesus is warning his disciples. You know, the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Ephesians says, it's only when we become mature in our faith. And he says, we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the ways and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful schemes. Here's that word again, isn't it? It takes learning, it takes study, it takes dedication to learning God's word. In verses 17 to 21, Jesus hears their discussion and comments, why are you talking about bread? Why are you talking about what's in your stomach? They listen and conclude that he is really rebuking them for forgetting the bread. Can't you picture the frustration of Jesus as he rebukes them about this? It's kind of like sometimes when we say to our kids, didn't you hear what I said before? Kids, you ever hear that from your parents? Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes parents get frustrated because they say things more than once. And Jesus is saying, I've told you this over and over. So here come the questions that Jesus asked as a teaching tool. He says, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or, or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears fail to hear? And don't you remember, don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Hmm. Oh, we picked up 12 basketfuls. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? And they answered, seven. And Jesus said, Do you still not understand? Do you still not get who I really am? Do you really think I would be concerned about not having enough bread to eat? Do you not understand that you are falling into the same dangerous pattern as the Pharisees and the Herods of this world? This failure to grasp who I am and the significance of my presence among you is serious. Though you do not hate me as others, your failure to believe in me will lead you along the same path as they have taken. Well, in conclusion, there's a few things we need to take away from this passage. And the first is be aware of the yeast. Jesus says the same thing to us. Beware of the yeast of skepticism and unbelief, which infects us all. To you who may be openly skeptical of the gospel, be aware. This yeast is dangerous. It seems harmless. You don't hate Jesus. You don't reject God. You are just a bit skeptical of the claims of the gospel. That's all. Understand that the longer such skepticism remains in your mind, the longer it has to pervade your whole being, and the harder your heart grows in response to Jesus. It's kind of like getting close to Jesus, but you're not there. It's not having Jesus in the center of your life. To you who profess faith in Jesus, beware of the yeast that also pervades. Indeed, your yeast is the most dangerous of all. It's just like a person who has cancer but doesn't know it. In contrast to those who have cancer but are taking care of it. Let me ask you a question. What is your hope for heaven based on? what what is it would you reply that would you reply that you do your best to be a follower of Jesus that you go to church and try to live a good life is that your answer if so then the yeast of unbelief has influ- influenced your body fully you've managed to attend church hear the gospel preached and still miss it just as the disciples had been following Jesus and missed who he really is our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Our hope is built on nothing else. If we put our ounce of hope in your ability to do anything, then you've missed the gospel completely. And the rest of us who get the answer right and still beware of the same yeast, it is that yeast of unbelief that causes us to worry about what will happen to us in life. It's that yeast that causes us to get angry at God for the bad things that happen, as though we follow Jesus in order to avoid trouble in life. Being a true believer is being one who trusts fully in Jesus Christ, alone for salvation, and who follows after him, not to win merit badges, but because he is compelled to be in the glory of Jesus. As long as we are in this life, we must ever be alert to this deadly yeast That would try to destroy our souls or failing that make us ineffective for the kingdom of God we must examine our hearts not that we might ever be condemning ourselves but that we might ever be casting our hope and trust in Jesus Christ alone second takeaway is God is always faithful we see that in the feeding of the 5,000 and today in the feeding of the 4,000 God knows our needs. And as he says in both cases, in both stories, he has compassion on us. And most of the times when we doubt it, it is because we fail to recall all that God has done for us. In 2 Thessalonians 3, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. In the Lamentations verse, chapter 3, verses 22, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And our third takeaway is never stop learning. Never stop learning, and that's where we began our message today, the the importance of learning, the importance of asking questions. It's important to be asked questions. Jesus wanted his disciples to get it. He wants us to get it. He wants us to know about him. He wants us to trust him. He wanted them to know that he was truly was the Son of God, the only one that could ever give eternal life. And we have an obligation for those who follow Christ to do teaching, to help others learn, to do our best, to seek every opportunity to learn for ourselves, and to teach others about Jesus Christ. My challenge question at the end of the sermon is, if you stood before Jesus today and he was to ask you a question, why should I let you into heaven? What would your answer be? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the stories in the Gospels We thank you for the story of the feeding of the 4,000. We thank you for being a little impatient with the disciples who just didn't get it. And we pray, Lord, that you will forgive us for the times that we don't get it. Help us to continue to learn, seek opportunities to grow, and above all, to honor you as the Son of God. In Jesus' name, amen.